and uh, it will be a lot of fun. So uh, you don't want to miss that, or it's going to be a little bit of a party in here next week. And uh, but tonight, today, we want to kind of uh, begin to look forward to baptism and, and kind of begin to explore some of the ideas behind that. But uh, first, I want to talk with you about movies. Uh, some of you don't know this. My uh, job that I do like nine to five throughout the week is I help produce a TV show. And uh, when I help produce the TV show, we watch a lot of Vimeo and YouTube clips. Uh, it's how we get all of our inspiration or how we waste time. And, uh, and so uh, I spend like half of my day watching these videos going, man, I wish I could create something like this. And uh, some of my favorite movies are like, uh, epic movies, movies that tell like these long stories. They're the really long movies. Uh, they're usually really bloody. Uh, you know, like movies like Gladiator and Braveheart. Uh, and, and and I watch these movies, and and you watch hours of these movies, and uh, the story in the in, in these movies is what kind of catches me. It, it's what excites me. It makes me want to be a part of the story. You know, like when you watch uh, a Gladiator, like I want to be Maximus. Like as I watch the movie, like. Like, when he chops a guy's head off, I'm like, that's what I want to do. Uh, and and I, think, I think that uh, movies kind of do that to us. Like, we watch these movies. Whatever you said your favorite movie was today, whatever movie it is that you kind of think of and resonate with as a person, I think movies have this tendency to, like, grab us and go, like, that's the kind of life that I want to live. Uh, when I read the Bible, I kind of get the same picture. And if you read the Bible and you're bored by it, you might be reading the wrong part. Uh, because there's parts of the Bible with guys chopping people's heads off. Uh, there's parts of the Bible with guys like stabbing fat kings and then all their entrails coming out. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. It really is. And, and I, I, think, uh, I think Christianity sometimes has this bad rap of that it's like this boring, sterile kind of life. Uh, but I'm kind of convinced that Christianity is supposed to be like the most exciting life possible. I'm convinced that Christianity is supposed to be this, like, passionate, reckless kind of life. And, and, and I think, uh, as someone who grew up in the church and spent a lot of time around church, that um, I was sold kind of this bill of goods about church that, like, if you become a Christian, there's certain things you're not supposed to do. And as long as you don't do those things, uh, you'll be okay. And so I sold this bill of goods that uh, don't have sex before you're married, don't do drugs, and you'll go to heaven. But when I read scripture now, I discover that Jesus had a lot more to say about my, like, every single day life than he did about eternity, than he did about heaven or hell. And and so I'm convinced that life and and this life that we're called to as Christians is supposed to be this thing that's, like, thrilling. When you think about Christianity, when you think about your your faith and, and your relationship with God or your lack of relationship with God or you think about the church, do you think of it as something that's thrilling, something that's exciting, Something that like wakes you up at night because you can't wait for what's next. As I thought about that, I was reminded of a story. And, uh, and if you have uh, a smartphone today, you can uh, follow along on Uversion. If, if you don't know what Uversion is, you can Google it. Uh, and it will take you to a website, and you can follow along today. Uh, our live event has all the verses and everything that we'll be talking about today. And so, uh, and if, if, you ha- if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2 kind of gives us a picture of the early church. And, and Acts chapter 2 actually begins and introduces us to this idea of, of a life that's lived uh, in this thrilling kind of sense as Christianity offers us. And so uh, in Acts 2, chapter, chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it goes, the story goes like this. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then, when they heard, one after another, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what was going on. They kept saying, aren't these Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues, Parthians, Medes, Amalites, visitors from Macedonia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and then they list a lot of places that sound fun to say, like Perugia, Pamathuria, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, immigrants from Rome, and, and Jews, both proselytes, and, and even Cretans and Arabs. They're speaking our mother tongues, describing God's mighty works. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make heads or tails of any of it. They walked back and forth, confused. What's going on? Others joked, uh, they're drunk on cheap wine. That's when Peter stood up uh, and, backed up by the eleven, spoke out with bold urgency. Fellow Jews, all of you who are visiting Jerusalem, listen carefully and get the story straight. And here comes probably the best line in all of the Bible. These people aren't drunk, as some of you suspect. They haven't had time to get drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, also your daughters. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. When the time comes, I'll pour out my spirit on those who serve me, men and women both, and they'll prophesy. I'll set wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billowing smoke, the sun turning black and the moon blood red. Before the day of the Lord arrives, the day tremendous and marvelous, whoever calls out for help to me, God, will be saved. This is kind of the moment that the early church is birthed. And when I read about uh, the birth of kind of the early church after Jesus dies and is resurrected and then uh, goes back to heaven, what I discover is some interesting key phrases. And I want to kind of see if these are kind of the things that you think about and resonate with as you talk about church. These are kind of the words that are used. Suddenly. Violent wind. Tongues of fire. Bewilderment. Utterly amazed. Perplexed. These are the words that uh, Luke, an early historian of the church, uses to describe this moment that the church is birthed. That there's things that they just don't understand that are happening all around them. And, and, and I think that we all understand that kind of feeling. That it's, it's what happens when you go on your first date and you have your first kiss. You know, like, it's this, this feeling you can't explain. It's amazing. It, it's, you're, you leave kind of going, I've experienced something I'll never experience again like that. And so Luke writes of the early church and says, uh, what happened on this day, this day of Pentecost, something happened that changed everything, that, they, that they're amazed by what's happening. When you think about your life, when you think about Christianity, do you think about it in terms of these words? Amazed, perplexed, winds, gale force winds, fire. Because these are the words that the early church used to describe their experience with, with, with God and their experience as the church. And uh, I think about it in terms of this. There's this famous basketball player. Uh, most of us know him. Uh, he's uh, fairly tall. And uh, in fact, 
Uh, he has several nicknames. Uh, some of his nicknames include King James. Uh, some of his other nicknames include the Chosen One. And in fact, uh, I used to go to Cleveland a lot when I lived outside of Pittsburgh. And when he was playing in Cleveland, before he had an hour TV show to be able to announce that he was trading teams, uh, before all that happened, uh, in Cleveland, they used to have on one of the sides of the building, they used to have a, a probably about 50-story uh, cutout of his, of his body. And uh, below it, it said, we are all witnesses. Right? And so if you've ever seen any of the Nike commercials with LeBron James, uh, they all kind of have that same theme, like that this guy is doing something that's never been done before, dunking a basketball or, or something. I don't really understand it, but he's doing something that's never been done before, right? And, and so living in Pittsburgh, which is close enough to, to Cleveland, there was lots of people who were fans uh, of the Cavs then. Uh, I don't know that they are anymore. Uh, we don't really have a basketball team, so it was the closest team to cheer. And, uh, but I was uh, strolling through the Internet one day, and I found a video that I want to share with you uh, about how good James is, about how good LeBron James is. So would you watch this video for a few seconds with me? The work they've done on that front line has been terrific for Cleveland. Garnett comes out on LeBron. Now they switch, and here's Pierce again. A Smith screen. Hoji will defend. Oh! LeBron James with no regard for human life. Did you catch that? LeBron James with no regard for human life. I want to be an announcer just because you can say whatever comes to your head, right? LeBron James killed a person. And dunked on them, I, you know, like, with no regard for human life. I think, I think the truth is that it's, it's one thing to spectate. It's one thing to spectate. We can watch LeBron James, and, and it's kind of this idea. We like to watch and, and, and kind of go, wow, that's, that's impressive. Like, he's an impressive basketball player. It's one thing to be inspired by LeBron James. There's lots of kids as, as he p- plays basketball that will be like, I want to be like LeBron James when I grow up. It's a completely different thing, though, to be empowered. You see, being empowered is this idea that you're not just inspired or you're just not spectating, but you're actually following in the footsteps of the things that inspire and that you spectate. It's kind of this idea uh, that uh, we all have this sense that, like, when we watch football, I don't know if many of you watch football, uh, college football maybe, uh, and, and when you watch football and you see these guys play football, it's one thing to stand in, in the stands and cheer. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to be like, wow, I want to play as good as they play. But it's a completely different thing to strap on the helmet, head down to Memorial Stadium, and on any given Saturday walk in and play football. It's a completely different thing. It takes a completely different set of living your life. In fact, you probably have to train a little. I would suggest it, you know. It's a completely different kind of idea. But the truth is, for most Christians, we live our lives in this sense that we're spectators. We like to sit on the sidelines. In fact, uh, Jesus has lots of fans throughout Scripture. In fact, it says that crowds followed him wherever he went. But did you notice that uh, when Jesus, uh, a few days before he dies, the crowds start to disappear. The fans start to, to kind of disperse to different places. And, and I think this is the idea. Uh, 
when you think about your life, when you think about this Christian faith, this, the, the, this thing called the church, does it mean that we're a bunch of people who simply admire who Jesus is and what he's done, or do we actually follow him? Because scripture says, uh, and when you look throughout scripture, Jesus' call is never for you to actually worship him. Have you, have you noticed that? As Jesus talks, he's never like, come, worship me, and then you'll find everlasting life. In fact, his call is, come, follow me. That's, those are different words. We're good at spectating. We're good at this off-distance, uh, Jesus is over there, he calls me to this kind of life, but we're not very good at this nitty-gritty following, every single day kind of life. His call isn't for us to stand back and spectate to be fans of Christianity or, or what Christ has done. His invitation to us is to follow him. And it gets messy. It's a messy kind of life. And, and uh, one of my favorite philosophers who lived in the 1800s is a guy with a fun name to say. His name's Soren Kierkegaard. He's a uh, philosopher and theologian. Uh, and this Danish philosopher uh, wrote several books and some of his ideas that he writes about in several of his books, one of which is Provocations, it might be one of my favorite books, is uh, he writes about this idea that Christ never calls admirers, but calls this idea of people who are his followers. And, and he writes this, It is well known that Christ constantly used the expression follower. He never asked for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. No, he calls disciples. It is not an adherence of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. He later goes on to say, he says, the problem with Christians anymore is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. When we look at this life that Christ has called us to, when we look at, at the hope and the, and the truth that is found in who Jesus is, what we discover is that Jesus isn't looking for people who will stand on the sidelines and say, man, it's so good what God has done. But in fact, Jesus is inviting us into this life of following him, this life of chasing after him, a life that's exciting, that's thrilling. You see, Christians are good spectators. We're even good worshipers. Some of us excel in our admiration and our worship, but we're not very good followers. In the Roman Empire, about 100 AD, uh, most uh, historians estimate there were about 25,000 Christians in the Roman nation. Christianity at the time uh, was ba- had been banished all. Uh, it was illegal to be a Christian. In fact, you could be killed if you were found to be a Christian. There was no buildings that were marked church. Uh, we didn't have the New Testament or the scriptures as we know it. They weren't readily available. In fact, it was hard to join. Some historians say that as you would meet another person on the street, one of the ways that you would actually identify yourself as a Christian is you would kind of get down into the dirt and you would make a half of a fish. And as you made the half of the fish, the other Christian would come up and make the other half of the fish. And so you know that symbol that's on the back of your car, or that symbol that you see around? It was actually like an insider, kind of like, it's okay, I'm a Christian, I'm not going to kill you. And the early church understood this, that there was something dangerous about the message that they were carrying. In fact, they kept telling everybody else that they had another king, uh, which doesn't go over well with current kings. You know, and so as they told this message, something though began to happen. As they began to talk about this message of Jesus, by 320 A.D., most estimates say there are about 20 million Christians in the Roman Empire. It's illegal to be a Christian. You can get killed if you're a Christian, but it grows from 25,000 to 20 million. 
to 20 million. In 200 years, in, uh, in modern-day China, uh, when Mao took power, uh, about their, their, most estimates say there are about 2 million Christians in China at that time. He banished all missionaries and anybody who had any kind of official role in the church. Uh, he nationalized all church property, which meant uh, this building that was being used as a church all of a sudden was used for plays and for, for uh, na- uh, communist activity. And uh, he killed any senior leader in the church. Uh, he imprisoned the rest of any kind of leadership or Christians in the church. And he banned all public meetings. Most estimates today say there's about 20, uh, from 20 million to 80 million Christians in China. When it's illegal to be a Christian, Christianity seems to flourish the most. And you have to wonder, uh, as people talk about Christianity in America, as they talk about what it means and, and the decline that's happening in the church, you have to wonder if there's something to the fact that when our lives are threatened, when Christianity is illegal, all of a sudden it becomes exciting again. If all of a sudden that, that when it counts and when it can cost you something, that all of a sudden the life that Christ calls us to all of a sudden becomes alive. Christianity has been made so devoid of any character that there's nothing really left to persecute. Think about that. Soren Kierkegaard in the 1800s writes that about his Christianity in the 1800s. Is it true for the Christ that you follow? That it's just a series of moral choices and moral things that we have to do to be able to make sure we can get to heaven? Or is Christ inviting you into this life of following him? You know, the story in Acts 2 isn't, isn't a new story. It's a story that's happened again and again throughout Scripture. And in fact, one of the times it happens, it happens to this, in this vision that comes to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, and it goes like this. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. The bones were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you... Sorry, I'm losing my spot. I keep going all over the place. And, and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and will make you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and as, as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling. A rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and saw tendons and flesh appear on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath entered them. They came to life and stood up to their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open up your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle in you in your own land. 
Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. Breath, spirit, wind. There's this idea carried throughout Scripture, actually starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse, 20, verse 7, where, where God reaches down his hands from heaven and reaches into earth and, and he, he molds man and, he, and it says, Scripture says, that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it says, and the man became a living being. The same thing that happened in Genesis chapter 2 happens again in Ezekiel chapter 37 and then again in Acts 2. It's as if Scripture is trying to communicate this idea to us. You can live your life, and in fact, you can do all these things and try to earn your way to God and try to, try to get your way to, to, to live life in a good way, but life isn't experienced until I breathe my life into you, until you become alive with who I am. See, something happens in all of these three stories. One time, creation happens. One time, things that were dead become alive again, and one time... In Acts chapter 2, these people who were lost and confused because this king that they were following had died and is now gone, all of a sudden become alive. And in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people become Christians in one day. It it says later that what happened in their life caused them to want to give and be generous. It caused them to want to welcome other people into their homes. Something happens when God reaches down from heaven and breathes his life into you. But you can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. And see, this is what we discover. Is that it's one thing to stand off and spectate and, and, and admire the things that God has done and the things that God continues to do in his world. But it's a completely different thing to reach, reach out of our, of our lives and say, I'm going to sink my life into this thing that's following after Jesus. Because Jesus isn't looking for more admirers, more people to cheer him on. He doesn't need any more cheerleaders. He needs people who are willing to say, I'm going to give my life to follow after the things that you're, you're calling me to and created me for. He doesn't need more admirers. He needs more followers. But following Jesus is supposed to be this thrilling, exciting, passionate thing that most of us have settled for simply admiring the things of God. We're, we're okay with cheerleading because it's less risky. It costs us less. In one of my favorite books, Mark Batterson describes this idea of holding on and, and, and running after God. And, and this idea is that you grab life by the mane. He says in his book, uh, in, the, in a pit with a, a snowy lion, he, he describes this idea that if a lion's chasing after you, you probably run away. But there's a story of this guy named Benaniah. And, and, and you can read about it in, in, in 2 Samuel t- chapter 23 of this guy named Benaniah who actually goes after a lion down into a pit. And, and, and all the odds are against him. But instead of like running away or, or being fearful, he grabs onto the lion. And Scripture doesn't say he has a weapon with him, which is usually a good thing to bring when you go to fight a lion. He doesn't have, you know, training in killing lions, but he heads down into this pit with a lion on a snowy day when all the odds are against him. And what we're led to believe is that Benaniah probably killed a lion with his bare hands. And, and, and we're presented with this idea that we're each called to grab life by the mane, 
to grab whatever's thrown at us, whatever's happening in our lives, and, and believe that in those moments as we grab life by the main, that that's where life is the fullest. You see, uh, when Aaron first called me to invite me to come to move to Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, when we first had a conversation about this idea of moving to Lincoln and helping start a church, he offered me lots of good things, uh, like no pay, um, like no insurance, like no place to live, like maybe you can work at Jimmy John's. That was about what I got, right? And usually everything in our mind when you have a kid and when you have a family, everything that we think says that's probably the risky thing to do and you shouldn't do it. But I would, I would suggest that life is found when you embrace the risky things that God calls you to. And following God is the riskiest decision you could ever make for your life. It's, it's going to cost you. There's no doubt throughout Scripture that Jesus again and again says, following me is risky. But he also says that life, that fullness of life is found in him. That he created us for this full life. But it's only found when we embrace this idea that God calls us to take risks and, and to chase after, to live this adventure of following who he is and what he's created us for. So my question for you is, are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you, are you having fun spectating? Because spectating after a while gets pretty boring. I played hockey for about 17 years. And uh, I played throughout uh, high school, and, and then uh, I decided that I should stop working out and not do anything. And so, as you can tell, I'm in peak physical condition. And... Uh, and it's interesting now when I watch hockey, I love hockey, it's my favorite sport. When I watch hockey, it's kind of frustrating because I see this thing being played out on screen or in front of me, and I'm like, I used to be able to do that. I used to be able to skate and, and do all these things, but now I just sit on the sidelines and I can cheer on my favorite players, and I can cheer on the people who are doing good things, but I'm stuck on the sidelines. I believe God has called us to step out of the sidelines and get into this thing. To stop saying, well, uh, well I'm, just gonna, I'm comfortable here, or, or this is the life I'm created for. God desires and created you for a life of following him, and it's not found on the sidelines. It's not found just admiring him or spectating him or even being inspired by him. It's only found when you desire for God to empower you to follow after this life that he's created you for. So may you seize the invitation to follow him. May you today decide that life isn't found sitting in church on Sunday, but life is found when six days a week, when seven days a week, you discover that the following after Jesus isn't discovered in singing songs, but it's found in living life in the fullest possible way and taking risks and living the adventure that God's created your life for. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to us. God, the, the thing that we discover when we read Scripture is that no matter what we try to do on our own, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how many good moral decisions we make today, none of that is good enough. In fact, you, you tell us that it's kind of like filthy rags compared to what you have to offer us. And so we invite you to begin to do a work in our lives. We invite you to now move in 
our hearts to help us to move from simply spectating the things that you've created for us to do and, and that you would empower us to begin to follow after you. God, whatever the dreams are that you've placed in our hearts, the dreams of, of starting businesses or starting families, the businesses that you've called us and created us to, to lead, the families that you've given us and the dreams that you have for our families. God, the dreams and the things that you've created in us, the gifts that you've given us, the ways that you've wired us, we invite you to empower our lives to be able to follow after the things that you've created us for. God, I thank you that each person here today, no matter how far we feel like we are from you, that you're inviting us into this life, this risky life of giving up the stuff and the things that we think are most important to embrace the life that you've called us to. And so we ask that you would help us to follow your example. In Jesus' name, amen.